Gracia does not want to trust what's going to come out of there. And so we're going to make a stand here for a little bit lower. And we've had Gracia Burnham in the past, and uh, it's been too far in the past. She spoke yesterday at the worship retreat, and I asked if she could just duplicate and ditto everything she said yesterday. It would be priceless. I want you to welcome Gracia Burnham. Her books are on sale in the back. We've got a write-up on her. And uh, I want her to come and take her time. We're going to have a feast. Come, Gracia Burnham. We have a short introductory DVD that we'll watch together so we're all on the same page. Thank you. At the end of May 2001, American missionaries to the Philippines, Martin and Gracia Burnham, made the fateful decision to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary in a secluded resort on the island of Palawan. About four in the morning, there was pounding on the door, bang, 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 and at first I thought it was a drunk guard or something, and um, Martin kind of knew we were in trouble. And just as he got to the door, it burst open, and in came three guys with M16s, and I think one of them had a mask on. The masked men were Abu Sayyaf, a militant Muslim terrorist group with ties to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Along with 20 other guests, the Burnhams were forced from their room at gunpoint and taken many miles across the open sea to the Muslim stronghold of Basilan. For more than a year, the Burnhams were constantly on the move, living in primitive conditions in the jungle, evading capture from the Philippine military under the total control of their captors. They were the enemy, and we never forgot that they were the bad guys. But on the other hand, they were our family. They were the people that we lived with for a year and hiked with and starved with. And you got to know the personalities of the guys. Soon after the events of September 11th, the news media took greater notice of the plight of Martin and Gracia and kept their story in the national headlines. As a result, millions of people around the globe began praying diligently for their safe release. I had no idea the magnitude of how many were praying, but on towards the end, when things would be bad, I even remember that, that last day of the um, June 7, that last gun battle. We'd been hiking, sat down for a rest, and I just looked over at Martin and I said, people are praying for us. Throughout their captivity, the Burnhams had lived through 16 different gun battles between the Abu Sayyaf and the Philippine military. On the afternoon of June 7th, over a year since their abduction, the bullets erupted once more. I dropped from the hammock, and before I even got to the ground, I was shot in the leg. And I kind of slid down the mountain. It was so steep. I slid down a little bit and came to rest beside Martin. And I looked over at him, and he was bleeding from his chest. During the gun battle, you know, the grenades were going off all around us and the shooting. But I just kept thinking every moment was my last moment. And um, sometime during that time, I just felt Martin's body just get real heavy, the heaviness. Tragically, 
Martin was killed during their fight. Gracia was rescued and returned home amidst a national spotlight. Was there no way Gracia or Martin could escape? Sean Hannity, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Well, it started as a romantic getaway for Martin and Gracia Burnham, American missionaries working in the Philippines. But for her first daytime interview, and I want to thank her for having the courage to be here today. Gracia, good to have you with us. Thank you. The outpouring of support was beyond anything Gracia could have imagined, especially at Martin's funeral. I still didn't realize the, how many people were involved and praying and would want to go to Martin's funeral. And I looked around in the crowd and I saw some of my friends from college there, saw some of our coworkers there. I thought, all my friends are here was a good day. Martin would have been proud of his funeral. Gracia wanted to honor Martin's memory and have the opportunity to say thank you to the hundreds of thousands of people who prayed for their protection and safe return. During her time of recovery, Gracia wrote, In the Presence of My Enemies, a riveting personal account of her and Martin's ordeal with the terrorists. This emotionally moving, powerfully inspirational account of faith through adversity landed on the New York Times bestseller list, and millions of people came to know Gracia in a more personal way. Now a much sought after speaker, Gracia travels throughout the country speaking to audiences about the lessons and spiritual truths she learned while in captivity, and how God continues to sustain her and the children in the aftermath of Martin's death. Gracia continues to reflect on her ordeal and the lessons God taught her. To Fly Again features Gracia's most recent thoughts and reflections concerning the challenges we face when we lose control of some aspect of life and how we can find hope in God's grace. Gracia Burnham lived through a real nightmare of fear, captivity, physical trauma, and devastating loss. Yet she has survived the ordeal more convinced of God's grace than ever before. Gracia truly has lived in the presence of her enemies, and with God's help, has learned to fly again. Thank you. It's an honor to be here today. Um, one reason is Martin's cousin, Eileen, used to be a Burnham, Lindway, lives here, and uh, her husband Robert is here, and their son Andrew, so we've had a little mini family reunion here. The other reason I'm so happy to be here is I get to thank so many of you, again, who prayed for us. What would we have done without your prayers? I don't know. So. I'm just very grateful to be here. They asked if I could talk a little bit about how music ministered to me during our captivity, and oh, I can do that. <laughs> music has always been a big part of my life, and it didn't stop when we were held hostage. So um, I'm gonna share that just like I did with the choir. 
While we were captive, I thought about the Jews when they were taken captive and how the Babylonians, the captors, would require the Jews to sing the joyful hymns of Jerusalem to them. And at one point in Psalm 137, it says that the Jews sat beside the river and they wept. And they put their instruments away because they just couldn't sing any more joyful songs of Jerusalem while in a foreign land. Well, I did my share of sitting by the river weeping. How well I remember the feeling of trying to get a song out without breaking down in tears. I was at the river one day with the other women hostages, and Harira had just learned that he was going off on a striking force the next day. A striking force was a group of 10 or 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group, and we never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them, as you can imagine. Harira came over to me and asked me to sing him a song. I may die in these next few days, and this may be the last song I ever hear, he told me. At that moment, several things came to mind that I could say to him. Things like, I hope this is the last song you ever hear. Or what about the fact that singing is forbidden for a Muslim? Or do I remember the words to, may the bird of paradise fly up your nose? Do you know, remember that old song? Um, but none of those replies was nice, and he had the gun. So I just started off on the first song that came to my mind. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. And I got to the chorus, and I suddenly realized what I was singing. Country roads take me home to the place where I belong, home where I wanted to be, and I almost lost it right there. And you know what? I think Harira did too. Maybe it was just my imagination, but I think there was this moment there as I finished that song that we both understood that we were caught up in a struggle that was way beyond ourselves, and we had somehow ended up on opposite sides of the battle, and it wasn't nice for either of us, and we were both scared and wished we were home. The Jews had seen the Babylonians destroy their city, level it to the ground, they'd yelled. They had seen the bodies of their babies smashed against the rocks. They were captives, and they couldn't force one more song of joy from their lips. Have you been there at the bottom, wondering how you got here? It happened so fast, or maybe not for you. Maybe your trial was a long time in the making. It's when we're at the end of our rope that we look up and we seek God because there's nowhere else to look. That's what happened to me in the jungle. I began looking up, seeking God as my comfortable life fell apart. I knew that this problem was so big that I couldn't fix it this time. I suddenly got a good look at myself. I wasn't that heroic missionary wife 
anymore who had it all together. I was tired and hungry and stinky. I had constant diarrhea. There was no place to take a bath, no clean clothes to change into, and I started feeling more like an animal than a human being. But worse than that, I saw my heart for what it was. I saw my hatred. I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I coveted the food they had that they didn't share with us. I was faithless. I began blaming God for the situation I was in. There was nothing pretty about it. And at one point, I gave up. And I asked God, God, can you help me? I'm sick of being upset and depressed and bitter. Can you change me? Sometimes I think we're in such a bad way, we're such a mess, that we think not even God can fix us. Have you ever felt that way? I have. Well, we've all heard that God is faithful. In every circumstance, he is faithful. And after I asked God to change me, he started, like, doing it. (laughs) Even there in the midst of my mess. The first change I remember had to do with water. At the beginning of our captivity, after four or five days on the ocean on a fishing vessel that the guys had commandeered, we got to land and we were all excited because land meant the cell phones would work, the sat phones would work. The Abu Sayyaf could tell the government negotiators their grievances, the government would make concessions, and we could all go home, right? Wrong. That first day on land, the military found us, and we had our first gun battle, and we had to start running for our lives through the jungle. And here was this 40-something-year-old lady who was not fit, who was expected to keep up with these young guys who were used to living in the jungle, and I couldn't do it. And I especially couldn't do it without water, and there was no water. And I began talking to God about that. God, I need some water. A while later, I really, really need some water. Later, if I don't get some water, I'm going to have to sit down. And after a while, I realized what I was doing. I was nagging at God. And I made a conscious decision to change my prayer. And I began to pray, God, I think you know what I need. Would you help me to be patient until you bring it to me? And then God started answering all sorts of prayers for us. One day, I remember Martin prayed, God, could you do something special for us today so we know that you know that we're still here and someone brought us a Coke. And the miracle wasn't that a Coke made its way into the jungle. The miracle was the guys didn't take them all and gave us one. But... Even as so many prayers were answered, our prayers to go home, no. It's like they weren't reaching the treetops. They were falling on deaf ears. And at almost the year mark of our being held captive, I got really sick of that prayer not being answered. And I thought, okay, if God's not going to answer our prayer for release, I'm going to start praying for a hamburger. Because I figured if I was eating a hamburger, I was out of the jungle, you know, going around the back door with God. Martin laughed too, but I was serious, and I fervently prayed for that hamburger. Right about an 
uh, right about Easter time, someone paid a ransom for us. And you can imagine the excitement when some of the money came into camp. This was it. It's what we'd all been waiting for. We could all go home. And the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf sat down and had a big meeting. And they called me and Martin over. And we sat down on the ground with them. And they said, someone's paid a ransom for you. But we've decided it's not enough. And we're going to ask for more. And I begged them not to do that. I said, this is not going to turn out well. We are sick of this. You're sick of this. Just take the money and let's go home. But they hardened their hearts and they were greedy and they asked for more money. But for a while, the group had some money. And that very night, they snuck us off of the island of Basilan, which by that time was teeming with soldiers. And for less than 24 hours, we were in a little Muslim fishing village by a big city, and someone went into the city and brought back to Martin and me hamburgers, french fries, Cokes. They heard that Americans like that sort of thing, right? And it's like God hit me over the head. Can I not supply a hamburger for you in the jungle? I'm God. I can do anything. And when we got the hamburger, but not our freedom, we started thinking that something must be going on here. God must have a plan in all this. And we both really thought we would never make it home alive. And our prayers began to change. And of course, we kept asking God for our freedom. But our prayer became more, God, you must have something to teach us here. Would you help us to learn it well? The biggest change in me had to do with my attitude towards my enemies. Jesus told us how to handle the problem of dealing with enemies, didn't he? He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. God began even teaching me love towards my enemies. There was Ahmad one of the guys holding us, he was about 14 years old. There were young kids there as well as older guys, and he was a cute kid. For the most part, though, the kids did the menial tasks that the other guys didn't want to do, like carry the heavy loads or fetch the firewood. But Ahmad was different because his uncle was the number two man of the Abu Sayyaf, and he carried an M14. And since he had a weapon, that gave him status, even though he was just a kid, and he was very proud of himself. Well, you know how 14-year-old boys are. They're always hungry. And we would go for days sometimes with nothing to eat. And then food would come into the camp, and I would watch Ahmad steal our group's food and eat it all by himself on the sly. And I was filled with envy at that kid. I was the lowest hostage. I was an American, and I was a woman. And that was two strikes against me. And Ahmad decided I was someone he could boss around. And we'd be walking down the jungle trail, and he would follow me saying one of the few English words he knew. Pastitter, pastitter, pastitter. Faster, faster. I couldn't go any faster. We were in a line for heaven's sake. 
One day, they allowed me and Martin to go to the river for a bath. And when I talk about a bath, we would step into the stream or the river with all our clothes on, and we would get ourselves wet. And if we had soap, we would soap up under our clothes, and then we would rinse off, and we would drip dry. So we were going to get a bath, and they asked Ahmad to be our guard. Well, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be out on guard duty or hanging around in his hammock, and he had to take the Americanos to the river. So we got down there, and we started taking our bath, and he started in on me. Pastetter, pastetter, pastetter. So I started going faster, faster. I guess not fast enough for him because he picked up rocks and started throwing them at me. Pastetter, pastetter. Well, I'd had it with that kid. I wasn't used to being told what to do, especially by a 14-year-old, and those rocks hurt, and I just laid into him in English. I said, Ahmad, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take the longest bath in the history of all baths, and you will never get back to your hammock. Well, he had no idea what I was saying, right? He just knew Mrs. Burnham was mad again, and the rocks kept coming till Finally, Martin very sternly said to him, stop that, and he quit throwing rocks. A few weeks later, we were in a gun battle, gun battle number 13, and Ahmad was wounded in the leg. We were really in trouble. There was military everywhere, and because of that, we couldn't get Ahmad to the medical help that he needed, and he started to get feverish and talk out of his head a lot. They carried him for weeks. They would have to help him do everything. And one day I could tell Ahmad was very upset about something and I found out he had messed his pants. There'd been nobody to help him go to the bathroom. And I thought to myself, this thought came from the Holy Spirit of God, you guys. I thought, what if that was my boy in this situation? Because I had a 14-year-old boy back at home They weren't with us when we were taken hostage. They'd been staying with neighbors. And as soon as we were taken hostage, they sent them back to Kansas to live with their grandparents. But I had a 14-year-old boy at home. And if I had a 14-year-old boy and he was in this situation, I would want someone to help him. And I went over to Ahmad and in my faltering Cebuano, it's the only language we shared a little bit of, I asked him if I could do his washing for him. And as I took his clothes to the stream and washed them out, and as I threw them over the bushes to dry in the sun, in that moment, God totally changed my heart towards that kid. He gave me a love for him, and I can't explain it. Ahmad eventually went mad. He went ranting and raving crazy. The last time I saw him, they were sneaking us off of an island, and we had to go through a fisherman's hut to get to the pier. And as we went through the hut, I heard noises over in the corner, and I thought it might be a big rat. And I looked over there. There was Ahmad. He was skin and bones. He was tied down so he couldn't move. There was a sock stuck in his mouth so he couldn't cry out. There was a hat pulled down over his eyes so he couldn't see. And I wonder where Ahmad is today. Is he dead? 
Has he recovered and he's walking down the trail pestering some other hostage? Is he still crazy somewhere? I'm so glad I had the opportunity to be generous with that boy because I can look back on him and not have any regrets, but it's because God changed my heart and gave me the grace to help someone instead of hate them. And God is in the heart-changing business. That's what he does best. And God's still changing me. Be warned, though, and I don't have to tell you this, change is hard. Mark Twain was right when he said, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. We get comfortable with life. Everything's going well. Things are normal and moving along just as you've carefully planned them to move. And we're really good at that, aren't we? And all of a sudden, wham, this problem hits. And it's not a small problem this time. It's a big one. And we have a choice to make. We can trust ourselves or we can trust God. When we choose to trust God with our problems, we come to know him in a completely new way. And I would encourage you, never hang a do not disturb sign on your heart's door. Allow God to do what he wants to in your heart. Because if we just go through life and we're always comfortable, but we never learn important life lessons, wouldn't that be sad? We want to be changed so we look just like our Lord Jesus. Little by little, God changed me. I began seeing them as the needy kids that they were. God gave us a love for them. We began to be concerned about their spiritual welfare, contentment. Even joy began to grow in my heart as I learned to thank God for the good things I saw him doing for us every day instead of dwelling on the bad. I began finding those songs of praise and singing them quietly out loud to myself when we would lay down on our rice sacks at night. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. During, oh goodness, <laughs> you're so sweet. During long days of hiking, I would try to lighten my spirits by going through the alphabet with song titles. A, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? B, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. 
Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You know these songs, don't you? See, close to thee, close to thee, close to thee, close to thee. All along my pilgrim journey, Savior, let me walk with thee. This going through the alphabet thing, that could keep me busy all afternoon while we hiked because I'm a pastor's daughter and I know the hymn book. Not just the first verse of every song. I know all the verses. So that was perfect for me. Those great hymns of the faith kept me focused on the one who works all things together for good to those who love God. Somehow he takes all those events of your life, the good and the bad, and he mushes them together, and he causes them to work together for good. And it quite honestly helped me keep my sanity. There are no hymns for X and Y, by the way. <laughs> I still had lots of questions. I would ask Martin, why are we still here? How long is this trial going to last? But I came to know God in such an intimate way that the questions didn't matter so much anymore. Well, you know what happened. How for months it looked like our release was right around the corner and then something would happen and negotiations would break down and we would back, be back to square one again and how that went on for what seemed like forever to us. And you know how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me, but I got to come home and raise my children. Can I tell you about the kids? I think we have a family photo here, if the guys can get it together. The kids are grown now. They were age 14, 11, and 10 when we were taken hostage. Um, I have five grandchildren now. The boy on the left here in the white shirt is my oldest, Jeff. He became a missionary pilot like his dad, and they worked in Botswana, Africa for a term, and they're home on furlough, and they're going to stay home. The little boy that I'm pushing there on the swing, their oldest, has been diagnosed as having autism, and they're going to just stay home and take care of that for now, and Jeff's at flight safety in Wichita. Uh, my daughter is the one over here in the white shirt. That's Mindy. And she married a New Tribes Mission MK, a missionary kid from Paraguay, South America. And Andy's a good guy. And he's the youth pastor at our church right now. The boy beside me in the dark shirt is my youngest, Zachary. He's at Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, Missouri, getting um, master's degrees in Bible and voice performance. And God's just really been good to us. And can I tell you the rest of the story? There's always a rest of the story, right? Sometimes I think God lets us get a glimpse of why something happens just to encourage our hearts. It doesn't always happen, does it? The why but sometimes it does. My kids and I have been praying for the men who held us captive 
earnestly praying? And why are we surprised when God does something awesome and answers our prayer? I don't know, oh me of little faith. This story starts out several years ago when I was invited to do a lecture series at a university in Arkansas. Well, I didn't want to do that. I'd never done anything like that before. That was way outside my comfort zone. But my uncle lives in that city, and I thought, oh, a free trip to go see my uncle. So I said yes. After I said yes, they sent me the list of those people who'd done those lecture series in years past. Lady Thatcher, Henry Kissinger, the president of Russia, Gorbachev had been there, y'all. I was in big trouble. But God was in this lecture series invitation. The first event of the several days was a banquet given for donors to the school and alumni. And I sat at the head table with the student who'd planned the banquet. And as we started eating our salad, he said to me, my dad and your husband were really good friends growing up. And I thought, this kid is mistaken because Martin didn't grow up in America. Martin grew up in the Philippines. And then this student told me how his father had grown up in the Philippines. They, they were dorm mates together at boarding school at Faith Academy in Manila. Well, that explained that. And that his grandfather and grandmother had done Bible translation for Wycliffe Bible Translators. I said, oh, what language did they work in? He said, Taosug. What? Taosug was the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke, and I knew this conversation was meant to be, and I got his grandparents' contact information, and it took several months before I was able to meet with Seymour and Lois Ashley, a dear elderly couple. They came to visit my home in Kansas, and we had the best time talking, and they told me stories of living in the southern Philippines where it wasn't really safe to live, and oh boy, did they have the stories. They told me about all the things that they had translated, and the thing that intrigued me right away was this comic book series they'd done, 13 comic books on the lives of the prophets, those men that Muslims believe to be prophets, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus. I said, I'd love to see those comic books. Maybe I should order a set just to have a good look. And they said, oh, those are out of print. In fact, many things, most things that they had spent years translating risking their lives to live on that Muslim island were out of print, and I threw a little fit. That was not acceptable, and our foundation made it a priority to get all those things back into print, and the first thing we printed was the comic book series. I didn't bring all 13, but I've got a few here. We were so happy with them. They're beautiful. They're colorful. Some of the first people to get a hold of them was an American couple that works in a maximum security prison in Manila, and they gave them out, and the guys loved them. They said, anything else you print, we want to read, but they said the interesting thing that's happened here is these guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these, and some of them are coming to us saying, 
we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, ask them their names because maybe I know them. And here came the names, Zacharias, who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas with his M16. He was so surprised to find out that our youngest son and him had the same name, Zachary, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets, and we just let him think that. <laughs> also in prison is Daoud, the guy that used to talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth, and since the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines, he found himself with no family, no means of support, and he joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. It was Daoud's job to carry the solar panels through the jungle. The solar panels would help charge the sat phones, the cell phones, so they could talk to the outside government negotiators. Martin and Daoud discussed all sorts of things from jihad to being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams. In jail also is Bashir. We called him Bas for short. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind to fend for himself in the jungle with 500 pesos, $10. You can't buy anything in the jungle. You can't take care of yourself. And several days later, the military found him. Gangrene had moved into his leg, and it had to be amputated. One after another, they told us of these guys that Martin and I lived with, hiked with, starved with, 23 or so of them. You know, my kids and I had been asking God to do something in the hearts of the Abu Sayyaf, but even more than that, we'd been asking for some contact with them, some means of reaching them, but I didn't know, number one, how could I ever find any Abu Sayyaf? Number two, what could I do if I did find some of them? And here, God had just done it. All we did was print some comic books. God did everything else. He's even worked out some ministers to work right there in the prison. In maximum security are 11 prison pastors that Will and Joni work with. Um, they're prisoners who've come to know the Lord and sort of gone through a seminary type training. And Will and Joni wrote and asked me if I would be willing to donate books in the presence of my enemies to these guys because they sort of knew my story but not really. And I sent the books. And their response after they read them was, if Gracia can forgive the Abu Sayyaf after they did such awful things to her and Martin, we should forgive the Abu Sayyaf and begin working with them because up until that time in the prison, the Abu Sayyaf were shunned. Everyone hated them. They kept as far away from them as they could because they were terrorists. And these prison pastors began praying for and specifically working with the Abu Sayyaf. This couple comes home every other summer, and we get together, and we make plans, and we visit. And early in August, just a few months, uh, weeks ago, we met in Ohio, and we had the best time. They always bring me gifts from the Philippines. This time, it was dried mangoes. The year before that, they brought me this t-shirt that a bunch of the guys in the prison had signed. It says, inmate maximum. I said, Will and Joni, 
what am I supposed to do with that t-shirt? You can't wear it to the mall. Yeah. <laughs> they sometimes bring letters that the guys have written for me. Could I share the first letter I ever got from the prison? Uh, we had to get it translated. It was written in his dialect. Uh, it says, I am Bas, Bashir. I, Bas, wrote you to ask you how you are. How about you there, Gracia? I'm here now at maximum security and my foot was cut off. Do you still remember the experiences we had? Like, no. <laughs> Sounds like summer camp, doesn't it? I, also, I still remember every time I cook food, I cook eel good. He did cook eel good. At one point, we were starving, and we came across this mountain stream that had eel in it, and the guys crafted fish traps from stuff they harvested in the jungle, and they caught the eel, and that's what we ate for several days, and Bas was the cook. Everything you said, I will never forget. Even though I'm here in jail, I has no fault. Yeah, right, he's the guy that one day chopped a guy's head off came up the hill with blood spattered all over his yellow t-shirt. How can he say he has no fault? I also told you, when I'm free, I will go with you to America, but my dreams did not go through. My dream was to become a businessman, but it did not materialize because I'm in jail. It's difficult to be in jail. It's very hot here, and it's pitiful here, and no one visits me here. I want to see you if you have a picture to send me. Take care always. And he signs it, your friend. <laughs> we just plan ways to show the love of Christ to those guys. I'm supporting several of the poorest of the poor. So they have some means of buying soap so they can take a bath or wash their clothes. And we don't even know if these are good ideas or not. Maybe they're stupid ideas. But we just ask God to bless our meager efforts, and he has. So far, four former Abu Sayyaf have come to know the Lord as their Savior. One of them is a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him a new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord. And we just really can't believe what God's doing, and it's not over till it's over, is it? And we just keep praying, and I wonder if when you think of me, if you would want to pray as well. Especially pray for Zachary, Zacharias, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle, that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work. And God's work is good. It's always good. Whether we understand it or not, whether we necessarily like it 
or not. And I've been encouraged that there can't be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe it's downright uncomfortable for you and you don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded that the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God's almighty. He can do anything. So keep planting those seeds, my friend. Keep on when you feel like giving up, when you don't know what you're doing, when you don't see any fruit. Keep on. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. I told you, I used to ask Martin, why do you think we're here? This captivity just keeps going on and on. Why are we still here? Some days in the jungle, we would be in what we thought was a safe place, and we would just be sitting, hanging out, waiting, bored. And singing always seemed a way to pass the time, and it, it encouraged us. So I decided to teach the words to the old hymn, How Great Thou Art, to the other hostages. I wrote the words out on an old piece of cardboard that we found abandoned beside the, the, the trail. And I wrote out all the verses, not just the first one, and we would sing it sometimes. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe dismayed. Sometimes the Abu Sayyaf didn't want us singing, and they would hiss at us to get us to stop. But they never seemed to do that when they when we sang that song, because they liked it too. It was beautiful. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. One night we had finished singing How Great Thou Art, and Martin said, you know, Gracia, you keep asking why we're here. Maybe we're here to praise God in this very dark place. Maybe you're in a dark place today. You're there through no fault of your own. Or maybe what you face is a self-inflicted trial. It's your fault. Or maybe you feel like your freedom's been taken away from you. Or things are so bad for you right now that you just feel like giving up. You know what the Bible calls it when we praise God when things are hard? It's called a sacrifice of praise. A 
praise sacrifice is something that we offer to God when things are good and when we're filled with sorrow. We choose to worship. I don't know what your situation is, but God has not abandoned you. In fact, maybe he has you in a special place right now so you can praise him there. What if you were to lift your head and open your mouth and raise your hands to God and praise the one who is able to bring you through any situation? There's never a place too dark to praise the Lord. Praise is a sacrifice, an offering to God. Maybe you're here to simply praise him right where you are. Thank you for having me today. God bless you.